Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Ole! This is Dr. Santosh Nadipuram. Yeah, I'm your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher, by the way. First off, I apologize. I missed a week. It's uh. terrible, I know, but I do have <laughs> a couple other calls on my attention that occasionally kick in. <laughs> it's almost like he has a job as a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I feel guilty, and there was no way I was going to miss our Halloween stories. So I bring you this week Travel Medicine Dia de los Muertos edition. <laughs> Dia de los Muertos is a wonderful holiday and a chance for us to come back from the dead where we have been for the last week uh, to visit with all of our loved ones, you folks listening at home or in your cars or showers or really wherever you <laughs> take us. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, thank you for listening wherever you are. We love hearing from you. Let's get started with Santosh. When you think of classic movie monsters, mm -hmm. what yep. are some of the ones that come to mind? All right. Uh, gotta go uh, from the very top one. Okay, so you got your Dracula. You've got your Swamp Thing. You've got 
your Frankenstein monster. You've got your werewolves. You've got your zombies. Those are scary. We've talked in previous Halloween episodes, one of which you heard earlier as a special Halloween bonus, about the diseases previously associated with vampires, with werewolves, some of the things that may make them appear that way, from porphyria to... Well, the actual medical condition of lycanthropy, although it doesn't quite represent the way you may think. It doesn't it doesn't quite show up like with uh, fangs and, you know, only happening at moonlight. Uh, Essentially, you just got a lot of hair. Less superpower, more uh, barbershops. But if there's one thing everybody knows about werewolves, it's what, Santosh? Oh, man, you got to take him down with uh, a silver bullet. That's right, silver bullets. Yeah. So, why? <laughs> <laughs> because that's how the original authors wrote it? No, not at all. In fact, some of the original werewolf stories which came out of Germany just involved like a, you know, heart of darkness kind of animal attack thing. Silver bullets were never mentioned at all. They ended up becoming more a feature of predating the movies a little bit, but not by much. Oh, okay. That's kind of interesting. Knowing that this was added more for probably stylistic effects. Silver is... Well, let's talk about it. Why why would you choose silver? It's got a couple good qualities. Conducts heat better than almost any other metal that we have easily accessible. Uh Uh-huh. It's antibacterial. Uh, It's incredibly soft and shapeable, which means it's used in a lot of jewelry. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But neither of those seem like they'd be sufficient to kill somebody. (laughs) In fact, it's actually not a great idea. Um, Aside from it, you know, being a rare and precious metal so that, like, you know, you'd probably run out if you needed a lot of bullets as opposed to something like lead. You know, it's it's a rare and precious metal. So say if you wanted to make like a lot of bullets, you know, there's probably a lot more lead lying around that you can shape into bullets than silver. And I don't know how deformable lead is compared to silver. It's possible that silver would be a less damaging, softer bullet. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, I have no idea about it. Not to mention, if you leave it alone too long, untended for, you know what happens to it? It gets tarnished? Yeah, exactly. It has to be constantly polished or coated to protect it from the air because it tarnishes if left exposed. Now, but it turns out silver is actually pretty non-reactive. It doesn't dissolve well. It stays the same shape in water, air. So why does it tarnish? And I know we're veering a little into the world of chemistry more than medicine, but I promise we're going to come back around. What is reacting in the air with silver to give it that crust or slime? The silver actually doesn't oxidize very quickly, right? That's not the, it's not like uh, iron, for instance, that rusts. Correct. Okay. Um, uh, 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 Werewolf blood. (laughs) Eventually, I suppose. (laughs) The main thing that causes silver to tarnish when there aren't a lot of werewolves around because they don't tend to sneak into houses at night. (laughs) Um, Is it uh, dust particles or oils in the air? Yeah, pretty close. It's, uh, you know, everybody's favorite element, brimstone. The devil's element. Sulfur. Well, tiny bits, yeah. You put together silver and sulfur and you get silver sulfide. So it takes a lot of time to gather enough to form that 
tarnish, but not nearly as much as you would think. Oh, well. So this leads, of course, to the logical conclusion that werewolves are full of sulfur. What? <laughs> this is... Okay. <laughs> This is like the when the 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 Monty Python sketch. If she burns, she's a witch. So witches must be made of wood. <laughs> what else floats in water? Well, wood and a duck. So yes, <laughs> if the witch is not as heavy as a duck, build a bridge it, out of her. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So. Like we're we're going down the rabbit hole a little bit here, Josh. <laughs> what would silver sulfide do in your blood? We already have a class of antibiotics that involves sulfur. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And we know silver has antimicrobial properties. One would think the two together would provide more of a healing rather than a werewolf killing effect. Are you saying if the werewolf is full of sulfur and you get a bunch of silver in there, like? All the sulfur becomes like oxidized and reacts, and then that's what kills the werewolf. What? <laughs> God, this sucks. I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Let's back up and just go with what do yeah. sulfa drugs do inside the human body? <laughs> okay, sulfa drugs specifically target folate pathways. Well, folate is required for a number of cellular processes. So regenerate GMP to GTP or AMP to ATP pathways so that you can so that you can sustain the energy for cellular processes. If we assume a werewolf has at least slightly different biochemistry, and we know that certain bacteria are very, very dependent on folate processes, that's why we use these sulfur drugs to uh, react and kill them. Okay, fair. So if we have a werewolf that is different biochemistry that is much more dependent on folate, and you abruptly send through something that fights it like an antibiotic, I wouldn't expect instantaneous but I would expect the resulting infections to maybe cause it not to heal from, you know, its legendary recuperative abilities. <laughs> legendary indeed, yes. I mean, just in case you didn't know werewolves regenerate. No, I, <laughs> it's quick healing. It's not instantaneous. Oh, okay, okay. So it's not full-on Wolverine-type healing. God, how terrifying would that be? <laughs> All right, all right. Catch me walking around the woods in Germany at night. <laughs> oh, if there was like a Wolverine healing type of uh, werewolf coming around. Yeah. Why Germany? Yeah, I suppose it's Germany. Oh, that is where one of the earliest werewolf stories is from. Oh, really? I always thought it was like Romania, Czechoslovakia type of thing. No, the Black Forest is home to many a ghost story. Ooh, oh, learn something new every full moon. And a delicious like cake. <laughs> but I digress. More likely than not, silver is either going to create long-lasting residual pockets that will prevent any kind of regenerative abilities. And if it gets into the blood, it could affect processes of cells needed to create energy. So yeah. lead bulbs probably just have... No real effect. That's why you should use silver fighting werewolves. <laughs> Happy hunting, folks. I would love like uh, an autopsy or something to just be like, oh my god, you know, they're full of sulfur. But, you know, uh, the, the, the logic, <laughs> if you can call it that, 
I, I guess the logic follows. <laughs> Next up, you mentioned among your classic movie monsters, Frankenstein. Yes, I did. But it's actually Frankenstein's monster because Frankenstein, as everyone should know, is not actually the monster. That's the name of the scientist who was trying to reanimate the dead. I need to be technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. <laughs> so let's talk about the original Frankenstein experiments, or ones very closely related to it. Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley during a casual weekend up in the mountains with some friends. Oh, really? This wasn't like, uh, for instance, like Edgar Allan Poe, where she was, you know, assiduously poring over the twisted, convoluted thoughts of a maddened scientist. She was just like chilling with her buddies in the forest. Basically forced indoors by a storm and all decided to come up with ghost stories to tell each other. So hers took the form of Frankenstein. But she wrote this inspired by, in part, science experiments going on at the time dealing with galvanism. In 1780, Luigi Galvani discovered that he could make the muscles of a dead frog twitch and jerk with sparks of electricity. Some of you may have done this in high school science. Oh, so some of you frog. may have performed these experiments in high school. Others jumped on this new craze and began applying electricity to every kind of animal that they could get their hands on. And this got pretty gruesome. Uh, you can look up on your own Galvani's nephew, Giovanni Aldini. You're applying electricity to see, to show that muscles actually move according to an electric current, which by the way, is a kick-ass discovery. Before that point, you know, how our muscles move was just like magic or something like that. And he actually showed you can animate tissue. By and large, the important takeaway here is that Luigi Galvani yeah. discovered a process to reanimate muscles, individual muscles. Yes. <laughs> and it sparked a large uh -huh. series of experiments on multiple animals initially sparked <laughs> sorry go ahead initially <laughs> however eventually scientists learned all they felt they could from testing animals and then turned to corpses particularly murder corpses <laughs> which leads us to a particular to which leads us to an especially macabre law in england the Murder Act. Oh, my God. What is the Murder Act? Have you act? seen the movie The Purge? Uh, it's nothing like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> I just Why enjoy that bring movie. it up? So, the Murder <laughs> Act allowed... <laughs> what the hell is the matter the with you? The Murder Act allowed the bodies of executed murderers to be used for experimentation. It was essentially a forced donation to science. Because there weren't enough bodies for anatomists, and the authorities really wanted to dissuade grave robbing, as we've talked about in previous Halloween specials about Burke and Hare. Around the same time Mary Shelley was publishing Frankenstein, the tale of a corpse reanimated come to life, a Scottish surgeon, Andrew, I'm sorry, a Scottish chemist, Andrew Ure, stood next to the corpse of an executed murderer who had previously been hanged by his neck only minutes before. Like, this is as fresh as a body can get. Right, sure. And then he held, essentially, a car battery to different parts of the man's body, where he had cut a couple incisions to expose nerves and made the corpse point at people in the audience and 
Twitch and, you know, oh all God. the responsible, mature things you would expect to be done in the name of science. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> where, do, where do we go from here? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the – this is the problem. You've, you've painted well, us I'm gonna, into a corner, You know what? Josh. I'm going to have to keep now, on digging. The reason Yuri performed these experiments was solely to restore sure. life back into the dead. This guy is a real-life mad scientist trying to create – I mean – Let's be honest. It, it would be zombies, just straight up zombies, not Frankenstein style monsters. But so while other galvanists were applying electricity to individual muscles, very similar to our physical med and rehabilitation colleagues of today. Although they're not like actually stimulating the muscle to like stick up an arm or something. They're just trying to get a little twitch in order to read the electrical signal across right. the nerve. Yure, however, was trying to restore life back into the dead and became convinced that everyone was actually very impressed by the amount of anatomy he had learned to manipulate muscles to that degree of finesse. They even saw the diaphragm rise and fall through exposure to the various nerves in and around the chest cavity. And this guy was right. vivid. He describes... Fingers moving as nimbly as, you know, an orchestral violin performist or cold as, you know, a a winter's midnight. I mean, it was bad. He did this to muscles in the face, causing several manly men in the room to have to flee to vomit and (laughs) multiple ladies to swoon. Because, you know, they didn't have movie pass back in the day. Oh, for the love of... There's a reason it was called a surgical theater. Yeah, uh, okay, fine. God damn it. (laughs) So ultimately, Yuri remained convinced that the only reason the corpse didn't reanimate is because it had died from bodily injury. So he's like, look, if somebody died from an infection instead of being hanged, I could definitely reanimate them. This guy was just... You know, two dead. <laughs> now let's look at Frankenstein's monster in the terms of these galvanization experiments going on. Go Shelley ahead, go wrote ahead. that uh, Frankenstein collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. As you see, no mention <laughs> of electricity. So she originally wrote it as... You know, kind of like what, like a metaphorical spark of life? Yeah, they were experimenting with galvanism to learn more about the origins of life. And if you could reanimate muscles, then what was a soul? Oh, yeah, of course. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. You're saying that you can move a person around without a puppet. Like a meat puppet, uh, yes. Like a puppet. You know, in, or, you know, they could even be awake, alert, doing things if you had the right conditions. Then, you know, do you actually need anything supernatural beyond that? And I'll I'll put it out there, Josh. I think we're moving towards trying to figure that out in modern day medical science, actually. Well, Yure was pretty much convinced he was a total success and went around publishing journals (laughs) all about his results. Like, here's everything I did step by step. And the Royal Society of London is like, ugh, look at this publicity of the crudest kind sharing your methods with the peasants (laughs) yeah yeah because medical knowledge at that time was supposed to be it was supposed to be a secret just like alchemy eventually experiments such as these are the 
ancestors of our modern day defibrillation. Right. Oh, okay. All right. I, I can see Well, you that. had to learn before you could have a defibrillator, you had to learn what electrical currents could do to all muscles, including the heart and how often and what large charge you need to add. And to this point, we've now refined these algorithms to where you don't have to have a human in the process. And that's what's called an AED or automatic external defibrillator. One in almost every public place, malls, airports, things like that. If somebody should suffer a heart attack, perhaps from fright at listening to the horrors in our story, but please not, then there should be one around that looks like a small suitcase. You can just open it up, turn it on, and it will give you instructions for what to do. Let's move on to our next. Oh, by the way, uh, Do you and your wife keep any meaningful trinkets of each other's, like pictures or, I mean, aside from your wedding rings? Keepsake of my wife. I I have like a little letter and stuff that she wrote me. Okay, well, you know, like there was the people who keep drops of blood from each other. There's people who make dolls out of hair from deceased loved ones granted that was back in the 1600s things may have changed a touch since then it's not uncommon for us to incinerate people and then save them in decorative urns on our fireplaces so mary shelley kept her husband's calcified heart (laughs) okay a what's a calcified heart the heart taken from the (laughs) chest of her husband No, but how do you preserve it? It's going to fall apart. He was cremated, but his heart refused to burn. And that is because it may have calcified due to tuberculosis. Oh, got you. Oh, well, that makes a little bit more sense. Still very gross. Please explain (laughs) why that makes more sense to our listeners at home. (laughs) Well, if you have tuberculosis, uh, you can have what are called gummas or calcified granulomas where you had inflammation uh, creating these uh, palisading groups of uh, macrophages, essentially, of big uh, immune cells. And if you have enough of those kind of gathered all together, after it kills the tuberculosis, for whatever reason, calcium actually goes in and deposits where the... um, you know, the healing granuloma was sitting in there. And then that tissue calcifies. The most common place to find these are in the lungs. But if you have really, really, really bad TB, I guess you could find them all over the place, including yeah, so in the So his heart. heart refused to burn. Not thinking that an ominous sign, John Percy Shelley's friend, a <laughs> Lee Hunt, originally claimed the heart. He felt he had the right to keep it since he was there for the cremation. However, it was eventually turned over to his wife because, you know. (laughs) So another different creepy guy wanted to keep this heart. And the original creepy I believe this was the original inspiration for the song, Quit Playing Games With My Heart. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, now I have to remember. Was that Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? Foo's Backstreet Boys. Fine. Okay, move on with your disgusting, disgusting history. No, that's really... (laughs) I had nowhere else to go but that joke. The heart was found wrapped in one of his poems after Mary died, and I think was buried with their son. So it it was a family heirloom. That family really had heart. They got right Uh, to the heart of the matter. uh, I'm about to beat the shit out of that you. Would be, that would be hard <laughs> to bear. This is so disgusting. 
This is gross and stupid. It's grouped. I cannot believe we're talking about this. This woman got the heart back from some other weirdo who was like, yay, I got a free heart. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Next, Santosh, have uh, you heard of a death grin or a rictus? Yeah, yeah. You can get it with uh, several diseases which cause your muscles to tighten up. Yeah, so, okay, uh, let's talk about the famous tetanus one. because... Few diseases can kind of contort and twist and kill you in such a way that you're smiling and not from joy. Uh, no, in fact, tetanus back in the day was known as the grinning death. Creepy, creepy. There were quite a few diseases which would actually paralyze you, you know, because of either toxic effects or, um, you know, the the actual infection. And you would you would have a seizure kind of or a stiffness of the large muscle groups so for instance josh uh dengue was often called like bone break fever or break bone fever um because you could actually actually bend yourself in such a way from the from the fever and the pain that you could actually break a bone typically your back but tetanus was a little bit unique in that it would attack the small muscle groups like the ones around your face and make you look like you were smiling all the time or at least show now is this a common result of tetanus uh no it's it's not one of the most uh common things that you see for instance if a person's infected with tetanus right and they get toxin it was to follow the natural course without giving antitoxin without giving an antibiotic without vaccinating please people vaccinate your children yeah you you would sometimes see the facial muscle seize up before death set in um other times you wouldn't see that manifestation because the person would be paralyzed their their diaphragm would get paralyzed and they'd stop breathing or enough of them would be paralyzed that they couldn't yeah, so eat and they died that's a pretty starvation. terrifying disease well the worst thing about it back in the day josh is that you really couldn't stop it. Even nowadays, even if you give antibiotics, you don't really stop it because the toxins are still circulating and they still attach to your muscles and your, you know, your neurological system. So you actually need to give antibiotics and antitoxin. Back in the day, this used to be seen more from war-type injuries because of the conditions under which the bacteria Clostridium tetani like to live. It's not nope. hitting you, it's hitting <laughs> us. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was my bad. Let's so move along. This was seen in a lot of war injuries. Clostridium is actually what's an, called an anaerobic bacteria, meaning it multiplies without using oxygen. So... It only lives and multiplies if it gets trapped in the right spot. So if you had a gunshot wound where you had a little bit of mud or soil get in there, and then the wound would close up, allowing the clostridium to sit in a little pus pocket without any oxygen around it, then the bacteria would grow and start to produce. Now, if it goes through you far enough, did you already talk about the traditional tetanus position? You kind of stiffen up and the biggest muscles that you have will start to produce, uh, you know, they'll, they'll start to contract against your will. So you actually, um, you know, the biggest muscles are there in, in your back, actually, and they're stronger usually than the muscles in your abs. 
uh, and your pecs. So you'll actually, it's, it's kind of scary. Almost looking like a demonic possession, perhaps. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, you could get so stiff that you can actually, you know, your arms stick straight out and they're by your sides. And then you, you bow yourself backwards. And if the person is inflexible, it, you know, the muscles actually contract to the point where, tendons and ligaments tear in the back and you can actually so cause that, tell me that doesn't belong in some freddy krueger <laughs> yeah yeah you don't need a movie you know for this horror now, stuff to happen you just this is real life, life if this were a movie monster there'd be some kind of way to keep it away or prevent or defeat it if only there was something we could do to prevent tetanus today <laughs> If Some only someone came up with an inoculation that or, we could take. I don't know. Like even if the bacteria entered your body, like you know, you'd kill it right away and, and you'd really never see tetanus ever because it would just become a forgotten disease in the developed world unless a bunch of idiots okay, decided if, that you know what? I that's want to that's see a tetanus. fair complaint. <laughs> what if it's I have to do this? Every single like what okay. month or year? That's way too often and expensive for the low, low price, Josh. <laughs> of I'm I'm almost promising you like zero. You can get the shot every ten years and still be protected ten against years. tetanus. How about that, Doctor? I have to get new cars more often than that. <laughs> Please get your tetanus shots. Tetanus in this day and age is terribly rare. Um, it's pretty hard nowadays to get the soil and junkets, you know, with the bacteria contaminating the wound and then allowing the clostridium to grow. But you know what? If it does happen, it's pretty damn hard to stop. Um, I will tell you, Josh, that um, I, I have not witnessed personally, but I've gotten stories from my colleagues who've practiced in South America and Africa where they've gotten tetanus. And you, for instance, with us as pediatricians, if you don't have antitoxin around, you give the person antibiotics, but you also have to give them paralytics so that they, their muscles don't seize up. You know what I mean? You have to give them ventilation so that they can breathe until the toxins like slowly get out of the system. And Josh, the scariest thing is this hyper excitation. You have to leave them in a dark, quiet room until the effects of the toxin go away because if you hear like a loud sound you know or you get shocked um or scared then all your muscles clench up and you're not able to unclench because of the effects of the tetanus toxin so it's a long horrible process to you know to recover from uh even if you do catch it um and it's just you know it's so preventable so please i can't think of a more fitting horror story than that but (laughs) let's talk anyway about did you have any fears as a child that just never really panned out as an adult yeah quicksand yeah like there's no freaking quicksand and it was everywhere in every single it was in tv shows and movies oh uh don't step on a crack or you'll fall and break your back or your mother's back depending on how sadistic the the person was saying it i don't know if you that really never happened my mom's fine somewhere in between quicksand and death (laughs) i'm going to guess Lies, the Ouija board. Ooh, oh yeah. I I do remember. I'm not as creeped out about it now because I guess like cognitively I know what's going on. 
but it's kind of hard to get out of your system. Like the, the fears of thinking about something just moving by itself from beyond the grave when you put your hands on it, you know, like, man, are you moving it? No, I'm not moving it. Are you moving it? And then the conclusion is a ghost is moving it. And yeah. I, I was actually too much of a chicken to yeah, ever So, I mean, that's one of those classics that we all sort of grew up with, along with the legend of Bloody Mary. For those of you who don't know it, for our younger listeners. Yeah. Our older and listeners that's... who are listening with our younger listeners. Sorry, yeah. guys. Um, <laughs> no. It's uh, ruining all uh, these. The legend for Bloody Mary is, you remember, you have to say her name three times in front of a mirror, and then she will uh, come for you. Now, whether she destroys you in a merciless, terrifying fashion or serves you a delicious midday alcoholic drink remains to be determined. But the real history of the Ouija board originally began as a source of comfort. People wanted to contact the dead and talk with ghosts uh, to settle debates, to say parting words, to learn where the treasure was buried. But there was a time when spiritualism was huge in early america real well and we're still trying to fight that unfortunately well this was around the time you know mary todd lincoln would conduct seances in the white house to speak with her son and it fell within christian dogma because you could reach out to heaven it it continued to verify what the church was saying although the things they could say were very vague this was long long before it got the associations it did today they basically had to convince somebody at the patent office that this toy worked to contact the dead and they succeeded. And that is how they got their patent. <laughs> oh, come on. So wait, wait, wait. The yes. Ouija board is a patented board, device well, or thing the or toy has or since expired. But back in 1886, when they first originated the idea, the Kennard Novelty Company just really nailed the best okay. way to talk to them. And they had to take it to the patent office and prove that it was a toy or game to contact ghosts. And they apparently proved it to the U.S. government's satisfaction and were issued a patent. All right. And it lasted okay. really as like a fun parlor game all the way up through the 1940s or so. Even even into the 50s. I think I Love Lucy had an old episode. But when The Exorcist came out, scared the pants off people. That The idea Mm -hmm. that now evil could get in through Ouija boards too. He could be possessed by a demon. (laughs) Overnight, Ouija boards stopped selling, became less popular. It's looked to as a novelty rather than as a source of hope and inspiration. So... The question is whether you're using it to talk to ghosts that you want to see or be possessed by demons. How does a Ouija board actually work? Right? There has to be some sort of logical explanation, said every easily killable character in a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea. Damn it, there's a logical explanation. How often do you hear it before the character spouting that nonsense is killed? Yeah, just one big monster. However, scientists did manage to design an experiment that demonstrated that Ouija boards are not powered by spirits or demons, but by us, even when we protest that we're not doing it, we swear. So it works on a principle (laughs) known as the idiomotor Lay it on us, Dr. Josh. Uh, A physician in 1852, William Benjamin Carpenter, (laughs) published a report of muscle movements that take place without people's conscious will or volition. 
think uh, sneezing, crying in reaction to a sad film. Um, that face you make when you taste a lemon for the first time. Almost immediately, researchers saw multiple possible applications and all jumped into it to research various ways well, that you could apply this. The reason you have Ouija boards, yeah. they did it with a robot. You have to basically give your mind free reign and remove a certain set of subconscious inhibitions is the best they've been able to come up with. And they did this by blindfolding a recipient. You know, originally, oh, okay. uh, one person did it with... They were receiving radio mm-hmm. responses and thought that somebody else was controlling a robot from the other side that was holding the planchette with them. But in fact, the robot was just there to amplify uh-huh. that person's own hand movements. Later, they oh, repeated wild. the experiment with a human because the robot, and I love this. You know what? I'm going to go into it just a little bit more detail. Researchers at University of British Columbia's Visual Cognition Lab have been looking at conscious and pre-conscious minds. Two years ago, Dr. Ron Rensink, professor of psychology and computer science, Helen Gauchot, a psychology postdoc researcher, and Dr. Sidney Fells, professor of electrical and computer engineering, began looking specifically at what happens when people use a Ouija board. And participants were told they were playing with a person in another room with teleconferencing. And instead, the robot actually just amplified the participants' motions. And they would ask yes or no fact-based questions, such as, is Buenos Aires the capital of Brazil? Were the 2000 Olympic Games held in Sydney? You know, things that could be answered simply by moving the planchette to yes or no instead of spelling something out. And when participants were asked just verbally to guess the answer to the best of their ability, they were right about uh, 50% of the time, you know? exactly what you'd expect. But when they answered using the board, believing the answers were coming from someplace else, whether it was, you know, actually the movements of the other person or ghosts beyond the grave, their accuracy improved to 65% of the time for blind guessing to at least a informed failure. And this was something that was reproducible, meaning we are observing and processing more in our subconscious than our conscious mind is actively taking care of. Uh, however, the robot proved too delicate for further experiments. I liked, okay. I like to believe that this means the robot saw proof of the undead <laughs> and became too scared to serve as a possession medium. That <laughs> well, was because it was the, possessed. How would the robot feel Clearly. fear already? Have you not seen a horror movie? It was Boy. more likely because it was <laughs> okay. like a very small robot that was supposed to be sensitive to the hand of somebody else moving a device around and it simply could not keep up with human hand movements as erratic as they are. The researchers were not going to let that deter them. They then started the exact same experiment, but this time with an actual human. Uh, So they would start together answering yes or no questions. At some point, they were both blindfolded, or at least the participant was blindfolded and made to think the other person also was. And slightly later on, the other person who was in fact a co-conspirator excuse me, fellow researcher, would remove their hands (laughs) from the planchette and the person would be back to just moving it around on their own. And again, would demonstrate that same improvement of, you know, 62 to 65% improved accuracy for blind guess, you know, yes, no questions. End result of all of it really is that you can be tricked into moving your hands around, sometimes even your feet, Without you consciously knowing that you're moving a prompt, or in this case, a yes/no question. So each person with their hands on the planchette is making involuntary movements 
but at the same time with everybody doing it and focusing on one common answer, that is the ideas. Even if you're focusing on different sports teams, yes and no questions are going to demonstrate better accuracy for just blind guessing. So, you know, if you ever have a really important decision to make no. <laughs> and you want to go with your gut, but you don't necessarily trust yeah. it, you can bust out the old Ouija board. And I'm sure nothing terrible will happen if you make huge life decisions based on, you know, questionable <laughs> spirit communication. Yeah, that's, Their accuracy that's went up to 65%. Yeah. That's better than yeah. a coin flip. Who cares what Who cares what sort of dark source is providing this information? You're a bad person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not falling into this trap. I'm not. I'm not going to do this. No. <laughs> Idiomotor effect. That's it. End of story. Fine. Move on. Also in the craft, light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a fun one. That's really, really cool. So. Um, Josh, Josh, do you remember like if your mom or your dad, when you were a kid and you didn't want to do well, something, but yeah. they wanted to make you do it, uh, you jello, just go boneless? I believe is what we called it. You just, <laughs> you just, you could go jello, you could go boneless. The end result of it was just, you can't pick me up. Cause I, you know, that kind of thing is, it's really interesting. All of a sudden, like a 20 or a 30 pound kid feels like he weighs like 500 pounds. Just like you cannot pick this guy up. Well, the whole point of this, and it's really, really neat. Uh, aside from, Oh, I remember, you know, I have a false memory of this. Oh my God, this kid would just go boneless and I couldn't get him off the ground. Like it was much harder than you thought. But it's it's kind of the principle of trying to pick up a 30-pound bag of water, like if you sealed off a bag of water, versus if you had to just pick up a 30-pound solid weight, right? If that If the center of mass keeps shifting around and you start having mass that spills over and moves and it's uncoordinated and it's all over the place, it's much more difficult to lift that mass off the ground versus if that mass is evenly distributed and kind of um, sitting stiff as a board or, you know, without moving around or shifting around. So the really easy explanation, and, and we actually do this in martial arts as well, you know, when we're practicing this principle of staying rooted, you know, don't let your opponent push you over. You do that by like when they apply a force, uh, say it's to your shoulder or to your chest, you kind of, you loosen up so that, you know, you, you sit down on your heels and even if they're shoving, they can't shove all of you. They can just shove a little part of you, um, which is much, much more difficult, you know, to move you out of position than if they were trying to move your whole body. So stiff as a board, light as a feather works really well because when you start chanting and whatever that is, if the victim or the levitator or whatever, if they comply, they stiffen up so that their arms and legs are as straight as possible and they hold themselves really still. And now you have a few people, you know, if they might be children, but you can use a couple of fingers to lift up about uh, 20 pounds of flesh on each finger. You know, if you have like a hundred pound kid, for instance, and five people. So, yeah, that'll come straight up. I mean, you know, you can use fingers when you're trying to lift your 
You, you know your grocery bag Damn talk? Skippy. It's like, I will, I'm only going to make one trip, I swear to God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so your fingers are actually really, really strong. So you you coordinate your lifting. Everybody lifts together instead of, you know, all at different times. And then the person stays really, really stiff. So their weight doesn't sink in different parts, you know. And now you can just lift it up. And, you know, if you want to prove it, you can take a 100-pound sandbag and everyone try to lift that, you know, with two fingers and, and the sand will sink and shift and move and you won't really be able to do it. Um, or you can take a, a board, uh, which is about 100 pounds, you know, put a 100-pound weight on it and all try to lift it. And because it's now stiff and well distributed and the center of mass is staying in one spot, and also, don't it's forget really, to chant. really easy to lift up. Although, admittedly, chanting, chanting, evenly distribute the weight across multiple people so <laughs> as to lessen the burden on each individual is a lot less catchy as a supernatural. <laughs> and, you know, it I mean, is, it is, it part is all of, about the catchy. You could say that's, the that's craft. paramount. <laughs> and with that... Our Dia de los Muertos episode comes to an end, but it's been a while, and I figured we should do a travel. Time. Been a while. All right. All right. Stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just threw you off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you can't spring that on somebody. <laughs> Here's the fun part. Right. You. <laughs> I don't know if, like, for the next four months that you're going to be able to use that phrase again. But I know that, like, with your stubbornness, you're going to be like, no, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it's been a while, and I'm going to... <laughs> it has been a quite considerable portion of time that has elapsed since we have done... A just the tip. So it's only appropriate yeah, yeah. on the day that, or on one of the days that Mexican ancestors can come back to visit their families, that we talk at least about a destination in Mexico. Santosh, are you familiar with Sachamilco? It Xochimilco? is a city uh, of canals I, I on that, a no. lake that has been, except for a few key ones, largely destroyed now. But the ones that are left are amazing. You have floating islands and gardens on which people grow crops. They live. They, you know, some of these islands are large enough to sustain a whole village. Others are small enough to carry only one or two houses, as well as people traveling back and forth on boats. And you can rent one of these boats and travel up and down the canal system. Also, while listening to mariachis, the the boats oh, you take cool. are called. Okay. Trajineras, and they run up and down the canals of Satramilco every day from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. for about 350 pesos an hour, or you can hop on a collective one, like a little, I don't know, okay. party bus, for 40 pesos uh, for a round trip up and down. Oh, okay. This again, it's our Dia de los Muertos episode, so we have to mention not only the good, but also the spooky. The last time I visited Sachamilco was years and years ago <laughs> with my family, so I did not get a chance to journey just a little further south of Sachamilco. Deep inside okay. the canals is a island that was never intended to be a tourist destination, known as Isla de las Muñecas. Muñecas. Island of the Dolls. The, the only way I know that word, by the way, and I love it, is 
from the show Community. An island covered with dolls. Super creepy ones. Like there's heads. It, it, like you know that creepy baby okay. in Toy Story. Uh, the one in the, the Toy Story one. Yeah, yeah. The just the the baby doll yeah. head. Uh, imagine like that, like and like the, its the, entire the, family uh, with all sorts. So some complete dolls, some with like spider appendages. Just a straight up island of terror. Local legend says these dolls move their sure. heads and arms and open their eyes. They've heard the dolls whisper to each other. You know, there's a lot of stories that go around about this. The, the basic legend started with a girl was found drowned under mysterious circumstances on this island and that the dolls are possessed by her spirit. Oh, okay. However, it started, I don't the actual beginner was uh, the caretaker of the <laughs> island. He found a little girl drowned. He wasn't able to resuscitate her. So, you know, just drowned. So that's pretty mysterious in and of itself. And shortly thereafter, he saw a floating doll near the canal, which he guessed belonged to the girl. So he just yeah. picked up the doll and hung it to a tree as a way to show respect and support the spirit of the girl. Others began to hang more dolls in attempts to please the spirit of the girl and prevent her from being haunted. However, that just gave the girl more bodies to possess. After 50 years of collecting dolls <laughs> and hanging them on the island... Julian oh, was yay. found dead, drowned in the same spot where the girl did. Oh, creepy. It's one of the floating gardens you can visit. Okay. That's it for this week. Thanks, guys, for bearing with us. Uh, if you'd like to continue to support us spiritually, oh, emotionally, dear. financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes. Rate and review us wherever you download your podcast. It helps other people find the show. Our... Theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. And until next time, happy travels. Bye, guys. No, no lollipop.